Okay. Now is the time for the leader to qualify. Uh, qualify says, please stand so you can see me, which is scary. Okay. We ask that you keep it. Okay, we're fine. All right. My name is Jeff. I am a compulsive overreader. Uh, I uh, have always been a compulsive overreader, and I'm afraid I will always be a compulsive overreader. Uh, and uh, I could bore you with a food log. I got, I have got many funny stories about throwing food out car windows and hitting people with it and stuff like that. But I won't bore you with those. Uh, but uh, I will say that uh, I'm old enough to uh, have not grown up in the age of political correctness, and fat is probably the most popular prejudice in our world. Uh, and being fat and being the child of a fat couple, truthfully, uh, was uh, its own special hell. And uh, and I had my, its own special hell. If you don't believe that I was really fat, and I was, I will pass around some pictures. Uh, this is sort of a little uh, story of my life with food. And this is a picture of about my heaviest weight. I was wearing a black vest because I was told it was slimming. <laughs> you will see that it did not work for me. Uh, but I am a compulsive reader. As I said, my parents, my, my mom was an absolute compulsive reader. She was always going to start a diet the next day or the next week. My father called her forever tomorrow because it was always going to start tomorrow. And I inherited that forever tomorrowness. We'll talk about that in a minute or ten. Uh, but uh, uh, I was a fat kid. Uh, I used food the way that I used food as an adult, which was to uh, salve me. I have uh, heard, uh, I heard in a meeting recently uh, the speaker talk about how much he loved food. He loved food, he loved food, he loved food. And I began to think about it. And I, I've never loved food. I've kind of hated food because food controlled me. I, I had no power over food. Food had power over me. And food scarred me, literally, physically, physically, and mentally. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, so to say that I love food, there are foods that I enjoy, I like the taste of, I like the texture of. But to say that I love food, I don't think would be accurate. I, I think it's much, much more that I, I hate food. Uh, and I try not to hate anything. So I, I try to look at food now from a position of neutrality. So how did I get there? So I'm a fat kid. I can't control my food. I'm fat in grade school. I'm fat in junior high school. I'm fat in high school. It had all of these social uh, ramifications. Teachers would make fun of me because it was okay then. Uh, they allowed the kids to make fun of me. P adults would make fun of me. That allowed the kids to make fun of me. And the only story I will tell you is that uh, when I was in my teens, early teens, I had to shop at big man stores because I, you know, I was beyond husky at that point. Uh, and uh, I had to shop at big man stores. And I shopped at a place called the He-Man shop in New York. And I assure you there wasn't a He-Man within miles of this place. Uh, and the clothes were terrible because uh, the, even now fashion is for the big person is, it has come leaps and bounds since I was a teenager. And uh, so I was getting these, these mom jeans and banded bottom shirts and I would be really depressed about it. And I would walk across the street to the pizzeria and have a couple of slices to salve myself. And that is the insidious, cunning, baffling and powerful nature of this disease. Uh, so if I, if I read the doctor's opinion, which I do regularly, I would find out that uh, I have an allergy to food. The dictionary definition of allergy is not that one breaks out in hives or has to go to the hospital and get a, 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 you know, a, a needle stuck in your heart, but it is an unusual reaction. Okay, And I have an unusual reaction to food. My unusual reaction to food is that I want more. So you give me food, I want more. It doesn't matter really what it is. You give me food, I want more. That's my unusual reaction to food. 
So I have this unusual reaction, this allergy to food, and this obsession with food. And that obsession says to me, eat, 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 eat. It doesn't really matter what the stimulus is, because if I'm happy, eating is good. If I'm sad, eating is good. If I'm angry, eating is good. If I'm, you know, whatever, the, whatever stimulus comes my way, I want to eat over it. That is the obsession, and it, it drowns out that obsession. Eat, 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 eat. Drowns out all other thoughts. So it makes eating seem the right answer, because that's the only thought I have. The thought isn't, I am an adult who weighs well over 300 pounds. My high weight was 335. I'm an adult who weighs 335 pounds. I have sleep apnea. I have chronic indigestion. I smell like a fat guy. I can't get a date. I can't get a job. I get made fun of. I get demoralized. I, uh, all of that is drowned out by my obsession. And my obsession says, eat, eat, eat. So I can't stop from starting. And I can't stop once I'm started, so I am screwed. Okay, because then that's what the control food had over me. I can't stop from eating it, and once I start, I can't stop. So what do I do? Well, if I listen to the book, the book tells me there's only one thing that will get in between that cycle that, that, that I can't stop from starting, and I can't stop once I start, and that's God. So I have a problem. I really believe in God. I'm a deli Jew. I can tell you... <laughs> I can tell you the you, know, you name a deli, I'll give you directions. You tell, I'll tell you what the best food, the best thing. I, but after that, you know, I was absent the day they taught God at Hebrew school, or or maybe stoned from food, or something else for that matter. But yeah, I, I didn't really know what the Jewish definition of God was, and I didn't really care because my you know my attachment to my religion of birth is minimal at best. Uh, but I can't stop the world from turning. I can't stop the waves from crashing. I can't stop the leaves from falling off the tree or the grass from growing. Okay, and I've tried. Um, and, um, and, and I tell you what, if anybody in this room can do that, please come and see me because then I will start praying to you. Uh, because that's just the way it is. I, there are so many things in this world that I can't control. It began to dawn on me after coming to a few meetings and listening to you guys that perhaps there is a power greater than myself in this world. I didn't think there was because I controlled the universe. I managed everything. And that was, you know, that was a big issue for me because I expected you to behave the way I wanted you to. And expectations I have learned in this program are premeditated resentments. And that's just another thing to eat over. I'm resentful, so let me start eating and not be able to stop. So. I find myself at this crossroads. I realize that I need some sort of higher power to stop this vicious cycle, but I don't really believe in one. So I literally went down to the beach to contemplate this and told the waves to stop crashing, and they wouldn't. And it dawned on me that perhaps there is something else. So I then I turned to the book, and the book tells me that the first step is to admit that I'm powerless over food. Now, the dictionary definition of admission is to come to the truth with reluctance. And I was reluctant to come to that truth because I don't want to admit there's something greater than me. I don't want to admit that. I know I have a problem with food. All I have to do is look down at my belt. Okay, I realize that. But I don't want to admit there's something greater than me even though I can't control this. But eventually I came to that truth. With re not, it wasn't even that eventual actually. You know, it, but it took some processing. I came to the, the truth that there is a power greater than myself. Now, I have to turn to that power greater than myself to restore me to sanity. But I'm not insane. I'm working. I have, you know, I have, I have friends and family and, 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 and responsibilities, and my life isn't that bad. 
Well, it doesn't really mean just because your life isn't completely in the toilet doesn't mean that you're not insane because I'm 335 pounds, I have sleep apnea, I smell like a fat guy, I can't get a date, and I'm still eating. Now, that's insane. You know, the, the definition I've heard in this room of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And I was doing that. So I'm insane. Okay, so I, I, I have to admit that I have a problem. I have to admit that that problem is causing me trouble. Now I have to turn to a power greater than myself and turn my will and my life over to a power greater than myself. Well, you know, my, you know the, the beautiful thing about this program is that it doesn't have to be your God or the God that they talk about in the room next door or the room across the street. It can be my God. It can be the God of my understanding. And I don't understand God. I don't, I don't personify God. I don't see a guy in a robe with a staff. You know, uh, that's not my God. My God is the power greater than myself, the collective power of the world that's greater than me. And I don't necessarily understand it, but I do know now, in retrospect, that if I turn my will and my life over to that, if I go with the flow, to be Californian about it, uh, if I go with the flow, my life is easier. My life is easier. I can't control you. I can only react to the stimulus that comes in front of me. So now I've got to, okay, so I, I get to that point. And by the way, I don't get to that point just because I want to or just because I think about it. I did the work. I've got a sponsor who, amazingly enough, is not in the room this morning, although typically he is. Uh, and I listened to what he said. So if you said to me, Jeff, do you have any advice? By the way, I've, I've also taken the word should out of my vocabulary as much as I can because I have no, I am in no position to tell anyone else in the universe what they should do. I am not God. I don't have that power. I can tell you what I would do. And I'm telling you today what I have done. So I got a sponsor. And I was about to get a gastric bypass, by the way, because I was looking for the easier, softer way. And I went to this, uh, this gentleman and I said, I want to see you professionally. And he said, no, you're my friend. And I had seen him four times in 20 years. It's like a bad penny kept turning up in my life. And, uh, and I said to him, he said, but I'll talk to you, uh, you know, for two hours on Wednesday at 2 o'clock uh, outside my office. And I said, wait a second, you're going to do for free what I'm willing to pay you for? And he said, yeah. And he said, if you get the gastric bypass, and this is not to disparage anyone who has had that procedure, it's not my business, but he said to me, if you get the gastric bypass, you'll be back here in three months because you'll be crazy. Uh, because you are crazy. And he was right. I am crazy. And I would have, would have been. Because they told you you could eat this much food. I mean, like, you know, a, a broccoli sprig and an ounce of chicken. And I would have been crazy eating that because I'm a compulsive overeater. So I did what he said, and I read the book. And he gave me the AA 12 and 12, because the, the AA big book and the AA 12 and 12 are the mothership of this program. And he gave me the AA 12 and 12 and said, read a paragraph and write a paragraph. And that's how I got through each step. And after I got through each step, we would meet, and I would read it back to him, and we would discuss it. So I went through step three, not really wanting to turn my will and my life over, but coming to the realization that I needed to do that if I wanted to recover by reading the book and by writing on what I read. And that is how I did it, and that is how I continue to do it. So I get through step three. Now I look at step four. I've got to make an inventory of all the horrible things I've done. Why have I done these horrible things? Am I a bad guy? I don't think I'm a bad guy. I've done bad things, but I don't think I'm a bad guy. Why have I done these bad things? Because... A, because the first victim of addiction is the truth. I lie to myself, and then I lie to you. I make things the way I want them to be, not by actually working for them or allowing the world to come to me, but I make my world the way I want it to be by lying, cheating, stealing, and a variety of other things. 
because I don't want to admit the truth. I don't want to admit that I can't control things or that I don't have what I want <clears throat> or that I don't have the Tesla or Lamborghini or whatever it might be. So I would lie and cheat and steal in order to either have it or look like I had it. And so, and by the way, the reason that I lie, I, I lie to everyone else is so I can keep lying to myself. Okay, that was my story. It's not because I like lying, it's because I wanted to keep lying to myself. So I go through all these horrible things that I've done and all these resentments that I have, and now I have to make amends for them. And I have to make amends for, you know, I, I work in the entertainment business, and I stole from famous people. And I have to call famous people up and tell them that I stole from them. And you would think, oh my God, what a daunting test, what a horrible thing, how humiliating. No, actually, it's the, other, it's, the, it's, it's the complete opposite of that. It was freeing. Because I was carrying around these secrets and I was able to uh, offload them. Some people reacted favorably, some people didn't. But I have learned in this program that if I tell the truth, your reaction is up to you. My reaction to your reaction is up to me. But I tell the truth. I don't get to decide how you think about me. You can walk out of here today and say, what a blowhard, what a piece of crap. It doesn't really matter. Okay, if that's what you think about me, okay. Yeah, I'm telling you my truth in the way that I know how to tell it. Now, there are times in this world where gentle truth is better than harsh truth. Okay? And sometimes I couch the truth in, in you know, other things uh, because you don't have to make people feel bad just because you want to tell the truth. Okay, you, you can tell the truth gently and, and lovingly, and, or not. You know, I, I, I work uh, in the entertainment business, as I said, I produce television shows, and there are times when there's no time for lovely, you know, uh, therapeutic sessions to tell people that they suck at their job. I've got to tell them quickly and with force. And I just had a situation happen the other day, and this is a perfect example. We were, uh, I'm doing the show, and this guy uh, was, a prob- was, was causing a problem, and I... And he said to me, you're causing a problem. And I, in very specific terms, told him that uh, he should be quiet, that I figured out how this all works, that there's, I'm blocking a camera angle, there's five camera angles, and we'll figure out how to edit it later. And I told it to him a little more harshly than that. And he got really upset with me. And afterwards, I went up to him after it was all done, and I said, I am sorry for snapping at you, because that was my part. He was wrong, but my part was I shouldn't have snapped at him. And he said, we'll talk about it later. Now, I'm his boss. Okay, and he said, we'll talk about it later. And I said, no, I don't think we will. And that was it. And I turned and walked away. And I went to his direct supervisor. And I said, if homeboy over here doesn't get a better attitude by tomorrow, he's not working Friday. And so, the next day he came up to me and he said, I'm sorry I didn't accept your apology. Now, that is not exactly what I call an apology. (laughs) But I said... Okay, I'll tell you what. Let's start with a clean slate. Because I don't have to flex my power at this guy. Okay? I shouldn't have snapped at him. He shouldn't have done what he did. I shouldn't have snapped at him. He should probably have apologized a little bit more. And there's the should word. Because I can't tell you what he should do. He does what he's going to do. And I'm okay with that. It doesn't matter that he doesn't want to apologize to me. Because I cleaned up my side of the street. And to me, that's the basis of the four-step amendment. Clean up your side of the street. Don't worry about what other people do. I'll skip over a lot of the other stuff in, in that uh, because it's, it, there is a time issue. 
but you know, uh, six and seven, you know, defects of character. I still have defects of character. I pray that they are taken away. I read a book, not program approved, so I won't mention the name, but it discusses that if you look at each defect of character as its own miniature program, I am powerless over lying. I am powerless over lust. I am powerless over whatever else it might be. Uh, and, and then just work the steps on that, that it might help you to break down that defect, understand where it's coming from, and be able to give it up. So I do try to do that. Uh, six, seven, eight, uh, you know, make the list, make the amends. We talked about that. Uh, and then, you know, uh, continue to have a, you know, the 10, 11, 12 are really, I don't want to call them maintenance steps because that reminds me of commercial diet programs. Uh, and I'm not any, anywhere near maintaining anything. I am trying to improve and recover on a daily basis because I go to bed every night with a smidgen of recovery and I wake up every morning a raving addict. And it's what I, I do that day, today, now. That makes a difference. Not what I did yesterday, not what I want to do tomorrow. It's what I do in this moment that makes a difference in my program and in my life. And it allows me to live life in a completely different way. You know, the commercial diet plans will offer you diets. And they all work, by the way. And they all work for, uh, in my life, they work for 10 minutes, 10 hours, 10 days, sometimes 10 weeks, occasionally 10 months. But at some point, the spring inside of me, as I've heard a fellow talk about, the spring inside of me would wind and wind and wind and it would, it would break open and I would go back to the old habits and with a vengeance. And so, as the book says, there have been periods of recovery, usually brief, followed always by still worse relapse. And in, in my life, that is, in fact, the way that it worked. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, you know if, if someone came to me and, and said, you know, in a slick 30-second commercial, I will get you to lose 120 pounds, but you've got to completely change the way you look at life, you've got to completely change the way that you eat, and then you've got to completely you know, upend all thoughts about who you are and what you are, um, and maybe it'll work for you. Uh, I don't know that I'd have bought that. So our program is a hard sell. I mean, there's, you know, there's 80 million obese adults, I am told, um, Let's say 10% of them are compulsive overeaters. Uh, so that's 8 million. There's 80,000 people worldwide in Overeaters Anonymous. So that's 1% of, 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 I'm sorry, 0.1% of the obese people and 1% of the of compulsive eaters have found these rooms. And that's pretty scary to me. And I'd like to talk about that in a minute. But first I'm going to talk about... So I have this abstinence. And my abstinence is no... I mean, I've got a, a, a lot of things that I abstain from. But... Some of them, processed sugar, cake, cookies, candy, ice cream, frozen yogurt, frothy coffee drinks, sugar-free varieties of any of the above, because to me that's just methadone. Banana, pumpkin, or cornbread, bagels, french fries, honey, and other natural sugars, any muffin, any pretzel, rice, potatoes, pasta, fried foods. I eat one plate, no seconds, and no tasting. And in that, I lost a bunch of weight and then started to gain some back. Because I realized that abstinence is more than just not eating those foods. Abstinence is learning how to eat soberly as Carl was talking about a little while ago. And what is eating? So and I was in a meeting, I was at Serenity Sunday, and I had been gaining weight, and I was you know, completely freaked out by it because I had no control over it. Because I can't control food. We've talked about that. I have no control over food. So I heard a guy talk about eating sober, and I walked up to him, and I said, I want, I want that. I need that. Now, I have a great sponsor who I love and adore and who has you know, held my hand through all of this, but he couldn't talk to me about food in the way this guy could. And so I said, what would you have? He said, come up to the, we have a breakfast. I went to the breakfast, the sparks were flying off these guys' forks. I mean, it was nuts. They were eating like, yeah. I said, finally, I turned to him, I said, what is so sober about this? And they all laughed. They said, here's what we do. 
we, we have a, a portion, you know, we, we weigh and measure our food. And within those parameters, we can eat what we want and enjoy what we eat. But it, for me, it's eight ounces of protein and produce at a meal. Not breakfast, but lunch and dinner, eight ounces of protein and produce. Breakfast is either two scrambled eggs or a protein bar. That is what I choose to do. These guys, some of them eat differently, but I give my food over. The power to control my food is given over to someone else. I don't make those decisions because I have proven again and again and again that I can't make those decisions. I don't have that skill set in my toolbox. And I learned very hard way that I cannot do that. So I give my the power of my food over someone else. We crafted a food plan and I stick to it no matter what. Let me repeat that. I stick to it no matter what. I have no willpower. Yesterday I was in an airport because I'm doing this job that requires me to fly and I want to talk about that in one second but I'm doing this job that requires me to fly and I have an hour and a half wait for my plane uh, you know, I was layover from one plane to another I have an hour and a half and the gate is right next to uh, I, I hate to use you know, food but Nathan's and I love french fries but I haven't had one in four and a half years but I love french fries now I hate french fries too as we talked about but you know I, those always were pleasing to my palate uh, and, I, and, and you could smell the french fries and I'm tired and I'm you know, you know just, just, just tired and lonely and aggravated and and, I, you know, and all I want is this french fry. So what did I do? I picked up my, my phone and I texted someone. I'm standing next to her at Nathan's. I want these french fries. Uh, and she said, okay, go ahead and have one. See what happens. <laughs> I, I wrote back, thanks for the sympathy. And, uh, but, but you know what? I didn't have a french fry. Okay, I didn't have a french fry because I don't need a french fry. Uh, I want to talk about, you know, I, I took a job that is actually the show that takes place on an airplane. I don't like to fly. I've always been a terrible flyer, and I used to take pills out of van to keep the anxiety from overtaking me when I flew. I don't take pills anymore. I take God. Because if you want to know what lack of control is, and lack of control is my dilemma, okay, if you want to know what lack of control is, go strap yourself into an aluminum tube and hurdle yourself 600 miles an hour across the country. I don't drive it. I don't know how to drive it. I wouldn't want you to be in a plane that I was behind the wheel of. Okay? I can't control anything except the fact that I get to sit in a seat and thank God I don't need a seat belt extender anymore. So I get to actually sit in a seat and not take up somebody else's space and sit in the seat and hope that it lands safely on the other side. That's all I can do. And that was what caused me so much anxiety and tension that I needed to take a pill for it. I don't have to take that pill anymore because I walk on the plane and I say, God, you got me now. Whatever it is, your will will be done and hopefully I will get to the other side and land. And I hope that whatever I might have said today will help get you to the other side and land from your, from your issues and your illness and help so hopefully uh, something that I said in here that I learned from you in these rooms will help you get through today and let's not worry about tomorrow. Thank you for letting me share. This is a time for questions only. There is no sharing in this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. 
Also, please remember that the opinions today are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. I'm sure they would agree with that. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. But remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on a OA podcast at some point in time. And I have to restate the question. I'll stand back up and you'll tell me when questions are done. Yes? Okay. Thank you so much, Chef. Uh, can you talk about service? Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you. I talk about service. Uh, well, you know, uh, you know, I, I'm a believer that you need to give back. You know, I've been given so many gifts by this program that, I, that you have to give back. But I think that many times in this program that uh, service is seen, you know, they say service is slimming, but service is seen as an obligation. Uh, and I don't, uh, you know, I, I, that really kind of... Uh, uh, disheartens me because service shouldn't be an obligation it should be something that we want to do we want to give back we want to keep our program strong I spoke earlier about the fact that you know, there's, uh, World Service estimates there's 80,000 of us and I think that's really sad you know I think that you know, there's, there's millions and millions of members of AA and millions and millions of members of other uh, anonymous programs and we have 80,000 people in our midst and I think that to a degree Part of that is that we don't necessarily always carry the message in the most effective way. Now, our message is a hard sell, as I talked about before. But, uh, you know, if we, and I shouldn't say we, if I do something out of obligation, I do it half-heartedly. Uh, you know, I, I was in several meetings right after the first of the year, and people with three days of abstinence were speaking when people who were doing the New Year's resolution people all came in to see what we were about. And, uh, and it really disheartens me because people aren't giving the care uh, into who, who is carrying the message and how effectively we're carrying the message. Uh, you know, I always say we need our Jack Alexander, you know, we need our Saturday Evening Post article, and uh, that doesn't seem to be coming down the pike, even though they talk about diet and food ad nauseum on television these days. But, uh, you know, because we are an anonymous program, we can't go out and seek that publicity, but uh, I think that what... That, that what I need to do as you know in, in my service positions and what I would uh, you know what I would uh, love to uh, send the message is that we need to really be careful who we have to speak and who carries the message so that we're most effective at reaching newcomers and and spreading the word because this program has saved my life and changed my life in ways that are so innumerable and I'm so grateful for it that I, I, want, I want to stand on a mountaintop and shout it out to everybody. I mean, I see a guy in, in the supermarket line who's overweight with three pints of ice cream in his cart. And I, you know, not just overweight, but obese, you know, like I was. And I wanted to say it to him, but I don't know how to reach out to him and say that on a one-to-one -one level. But I know that if within the confines of service, if I do it effectively, I can reach out to people who might be able to find us. And, and, and it, it, it's sort of uh, my pet peeve of the month, and I have one every month, not to worry. <laughs> but my pet peeve of the month is that, and, and uh, yeah, I, I, just, I just hope for everyone who's involved in service that you do it from a place of love, and not from a place of obligation, that you do it from a place of how can I most effectively carry the message, not how can I get rid of this obligation and call the first person on the list and see if they, you know, if they know what the heck they're talking about. So, uh, but I do believe in service and I do believe that service is slimming not because it keeps me from eating because I'm too busy to eat but because it keeps reminding me of the principles of the program because I need to be reminded of them not once a day or twice a day but all day, every day. And by making this program an integral part of my life I'm able to keep reminding myself that I'm a compulsive overeater and that french fry is not going to solve my problem. Hi, Beth. French fries. 
What power helped me in the moment to send the text instead of in the moment? Well, I never. There's not. A, there's a time we have no power. Is what you asked, and I would. I would contend that there's never a time that I have the power. Uh, you know, uh, I have a, a, a. I'll go back to that in one second. But I have. I've been working in this office, and you know, we're crazy busy. It's TV production, crazy busy, and we send out for food. And the other day, uh, I have. I share an office with uh, with the other producer of, of the show. Yeah, we set out for food and he had french fries and he offered me a french fry and I said, no, thank you. And he said, you are so disciplined. And I looked at him and I said, no, I'm not disciplined. If I was disciplined, I could have one french fry. Okay, I can't have one french fry. I either have the state of Idaho or nothing. That's my, those are my choices. Uh, and so, so, uh, you know, so, uh, so in that moment, though, going back to yesterday, there's two things. One, well, the answer is God. I mean, the overarching answer is God. But the specific answer is, one, I knew that French fry wasn't going to help me. I mean, it might have made 12 seconds a little bit more pleasant, and then the, the next 24 hours or, or 24 days or 24 years, a lot less unpleasant, because I know if I dance with the gorilla... I don't know when the dance is over. The gorilla will let me know. Okay? You, know, you, you dance with that gorilla. There's no... I can't say, you know what? It's my birthday. I'm going to have a piece of cake. And tomorrow I'll be back on my plan. Because I don't believe my history shows that I won't be back on the plan. So that was number one. Uh, so I knew it wasn't going to help. And I knew it wasn't going to help not because I'm smart, but because I'm stupid and I had to do it 10,000 times before I realized that. And the only way that I got to realize it was I got to put God in between the obsession and the allergy. Okay, so God got in there. So whatever God, you know, I didn't turn and say, God, please help me not do it. Although I've done that many times. I didn't do that yesterday because I kind of shortcut that because I've done it so many times. that It was almost a, a, a reaction as opposed to something I had to stop and think about doing. And so I realized the only way I could keep myself from doing it was to, you know, basically... Uh, you know, uh, put my attention somewhere else. So I picked up the phone and I hit, te- you know, and I was going to call someone. It was a noisy airport, so I went to text. And the first person on my text was a fellow who I text with fairly regularly, and I just started typing. And she typed back, and she made me laugh by saying, "Yeah, a lot of help that, a lot of good that'll do." And that made me laugh because she was right. And I said, "How about the sympathy?" And she said, "Well, I made you laugh, you know, and that was enough." And then I walked away and I got, uh, you know, I, I did, it was time for my snack. And I went and bought a banana at, there was a store, thank God, that was selling bananas. And that was it. And I, that episode was over, although I kept looking at the Nathans going, oh, why do you have to be there? <laughs> Sir. A lying. Oh, can I think of a, a specific defect that I worked uh, six and seven by uh, sort of creating its own mini program around? And the answer is lying. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, my disease is a disease of convenience. Okay, I eat so I don't have to feel. I lie so I don't have to you know, worry about the repercussions of telling you the truth. So I'm, I, you know, I was a liar. You could not believe a word I said because uh, I told you what I wanted you to believe or what I wanted to believe, or what, I, what was convenient to tell you. And that's a habit that doesn't die easily. Uh, and so uh, I said, okay, I am powerless over lying. My life has become unmanageable. 
I came to believe that the power greater than myself could keep me from lying. I turned my will and my life over to that God. And if I really turn my will and my life over to God, I tell the truth and turn to God. Now, again, don't have to be harsh about it. I don't have to do it every day to somebody who I don't like. I don't like you is not really something I should be saying to people. But, you know, if it comes up and they ask me how I feel about them, I tell them the truth. And I turn to God. And their reaction is their business. And then I go through a, a, fourth, a little mini fourth step. Who have I lied to? What have I lied about? Do I need to make any amends about the lies that I already haven't made in my you know, other fourth step? Uh, and then you know, literally go through that. And I, you know, I, go, I do an inventory every night. And it's what I call my RAD, A-E-I-O-U. And the RAD part is resentments, um, uh, amends, and defects. So before I even get to any of the other stuff, who do I have a resentment against? What amends do I need to make? What defects popped up in my life? And I look at those every night. Well, most nights. Sometimes I fall asleep before I, I do it. I mean to do it every night. But I, I, I say five nights a week. I do that. And I look at my life and I say, I lied today. Did I need to lie? Well, you never need to lie. The truth is always better. You know, it's not always easy, but it's always better. So I try not to lie for convenience. I try not to lie at all. Yeah, I work in a business where everyone lies. <laughs> you know, and, and there are times when, you know, uh, I, you know I, I tell the people I work with, never say no to anyone. And they say, can I fly the plane? I, I say, well, let me see what the pilot has to say about that. I'm not saying yes, but I don't say no. That's, is that a lie? I'll ask my grand sponsor after the meeting is sitting over here. I don't think it's a lie. You know, it's, it, but, you know, it's not the, whole, the truth, the whole truth. It's not courtroom honesty. The truth, the whole truth is nothing but the truth. And I try to live my life with courtroom honesty, tempered with love and care for people. And so I do that on a daily basis. You know, I see a hand shooting up. Thank you very much for your lead. Could you talk about the evolution of your relationships with your family and with people you've known and worked with from before to now and how and if they've changed? Sure. The re- evolution of my relationship with my family and with, uh, well, uh, you know, and, 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 and co-workers and things like that. Um, well, the first thing I'll talk about is my kids. My kids used to hide their food from me because I couldn't be trusted around their food because I would eat it. They would get a treat and then they'd look for it two days later and where was it? Well, I knew where it was, but, yeah. Uh, and they didn't trust me. Now, you can't have love without trust and respect, in my view. So, if, you, if my kids aren't trusting me, I'm in a heap of trouble. And my kids trust me now. They know if they bring something in, it's there. They know if they tell me something, it's kept in confidence. So, my kids trust me now. So, that, that, uh, that alone is worth the price of admission. Uh, in terms of like co-workers and things like that, I see people who I haven't seen in years. And of course, there's a big physical difference and everyone says, oh my God, you look great. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, because, you know, I'm glad they think I look great. Well, I'm not so sure I think I look great, but I'm glad they think I look great. But, uh, you know, uh, but they also see a difference in my eyes and a difference in how I comport myself in the world because I'm not afraid of anything anymore. Okay, you fire me? Okay, it's not my job. I did a, a show which was based around the Bible. Now, we talked about my being a Jew, right? All right, it was based around the Bible. And I did the pilot, and they didn't pick me up for the series. And everyone came up to me and said, Oh, my God, you must be heartbroken. And I said, No, it wasn't my show. I'm not living fear of being fired. Because if that's what God's plan is, that I'm not supposed to be there, then I'm not going to be there. And it doesn't matter how much I want to be there, because I don't control that. And so I don't live in fear, and I don't live in terror, and I don't live in worry, and so it frees me up to be a better guy. 
You know, I said, I think I'm a nice guy. I do, and I'm a nicer person because I don't have to worry about what are you going to try to take from me? What's the strategy here? What angle do I get to play? Because I don't have to play the angles anymore. I play God. God, it's up to you. I do the footwork. Now, that doesn't mean I can be lazy or I don't have to do stuff. I do the footwork. You know, I, when I fly in this plane, I, I see where the exit rows are. I try and sit on the aisle so in case it does go down, I get out fast. You know, that's doing the footwork. Okay, but the results aren't up to me. And that's how I try and live life. I do the footwork and turn the results over to God. I go in for a, for a job interview, which is often in my business, and I put my hand on the door and I say, God, I've done my footwork. The rest is up to you. And I walk in the interview and I don't, I'm not afraid. I, even if I desperately need the job, it doesn't matter. God will take care of me. I'll be okay. Thank you. I felt soothe. Say that three times fast. Uh, my relationship with God and the higher power. Uh, you know, I... I in, in, in the moment of agitation, I, I pray, I turn to God. I also have a thing, and I keep it on my phone uh, that someone sent me, and it says something like, God, I know I'm agitated and doubtful right now, but I've chosen you to be my God. Please help me get through this. And by saying that, it calms me down. I make phone calls, and many of you in this room have been the recipients of my ranting phone calls, and I calm myself down. Uh, I read, uh, you know, I'll do other things. And I have a bad habit, and I was talking about it. I, st- I smoke cigars occasionally. And so sometimes I will self-soothe by smoking a cigar. Probably not the best habit in the world, and probably not what uh, Bill W. intended when he said, why don't you not drink over this problem? But, uh, you know, but that does help me at times, too. Uh, and I take walks, and I, you know, talk, I, I you know, hang out with my kids if I can, because they bring you down to earth real fast. Uh, sometimes too fast, and uh, uh, and uh, you know I talk to other people. I, I'm a talker. I talk a lot, as you can probably tell. So. Can you describe the process that got you over the hump to actually do something about your weight? Describe the process about doing something about my weight. Well, I was uh, I was uh, reaching an age of uh, of uh, maturity. Uh, and uh, I was sitting on my balcony. I had gotten into a business deal where I lost, oh, say, three or four hundred thousand dollars, which was all I had. And uh, uh, and I so I was ridiculously overweight, ridiculously out of shape, ridiculously unhealthy. I called myself. I described myself as a heart attack waiting to happen. Uh, and I was broke, and uh, I was financially, morally, and spiritually bankrupt. And I kind of realized it. Now, I had been in program for a brief moment in the late 80s. And I worked the rooms and did a diet. And both worked. And then I met a girl, heard the graduation song, which is, Welcome to McDonald's. May I take your order, please? And uh, I left. Uh, and was gone for 22 years. I look at someone who's been here that whole time. But about 22 years. So I knew you guys were here. But I didn't want to come back. So I was going to get a gastric bypass. And when I went to the gastric bypass and saw that maybe it wasn't quite the easier, softer way that I envisioned, it made me you know, take sort of a, a, a look at my life. But I, was, I remember very vividly sitting on my balcony in my house, <coughs> knowing I was morally, spiritually, financially bankrupt, in terrible shape, in terrible health, and saying, you know, it might be easier if I just killed myself. And I was going to look for a tree that I would hold my weight so I could hang myself. And then I realized my kids wouldn't get the insurance money, so I had to come up with a more creative way to kill myself. And I was daydreaming creative ways to kill myself. And I said, I can't do this, because if I'm gone, who's going to take care of my children? Who's, you know, what, how's that going to work? 
and I didn't like the answers I got, so I realized I had to do something. So I went to the, 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 the informational seminars on this gastric bypass, uh, and realized that it was, and the, the surgeon said to me, oh, we'll send you to the shrink, she'll tell me you're fine, and we'll do the surgery. And I said, wait a second, the shrink should see if I'm fine, not tell me that I'm fine, because I know I'm not fine. And if I'm not fine, what do I need to do to take care of this? And the only thing I could think of was calling this guy who I knew from my first sojourn into OA and, uh, and, and talking about with him, and he escalated me back into the room. And uh, I thank God for that every day. And, and apparently I'm done. And on that note, I will finish. So thank you very much.